Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, I'm Rohit from Life's Mastery and today I'm excited to have Matt Waller, who's a behavioral scientist and entrepreneur working at the intersection of technology and human behavior, designing products and programs that help people live happier, healthier lives. After leaving Katmia to build and sell two successful startups, he became Microsoft's first behavioral scientist and a director at Microsoft Ventures. He's now the chief behavioral officer at Clove Health, a Medicare advantage plan, changing the model of insurance by changing behavior. He speaks frequently on the science of behavior change and product design and sits on the board of several startups and nonprofits. He has written a new book, Startup In, How to Build Profits That Create Change, uh, which is releasing on the 11th of June. And a huge thank you to Leland Ball from Random, uh, from uh, Penguin Random House for organizing this interview. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for having me, Rohit. Awesome. So, um, so you know, can you talk about your journey? How, how did you get into this crazy world of startups and, and uh, what made you uh, get interested into, into behavioral science? Yeah, so it's, uh, I had kind of an interesting background. I came from a very rural part of America. Um, and I think, you know, psychology in the U.S. at least is often sort of taught to us by media, right? We see movies and television where, you know, somebody lies on a couch and talks to a psychologist or, you know, sort of, you know, we watch the Sopranos of the world and that's our vision of psychology, right? This sort of talk, talk therapy. Um, right. But when I was in when I was in college, I got exposed to social psychology and, and a very different way of psychology as a science for looking at why we do what we do in an organized way. And that was really appealing to me. Um, you know, I, I was always, have always been interested in sort of creating change and, and it sort of lucked into a field where, where I could do that in a systematic and programmatic way, um, which is really appeals to my personality. I think if I got exposed to something like design, where there isn't as much of a, you know, sort of emphasis on experimentation and data, I don't think I would have ended up where I am. You know, I happen to find something that that appealed to my personality. And I certainly didn't, I don't, um, although my parents might disagree, I don't think of myself as having like an entrepreneurial bone in my body. My parents love to fill in stories uh, from my childhood where I used to figure out different ways of, of having little, you know, little businesses and making money, but, but I don't, I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I very much thought of myself as a scientist. And then I had a really unique experience when I was in grad school and getting my PhD where a startup sort of came to me um, and uh, uh, sort of said, Hey, will you sit on our advisory board and give us some advice? And I was like, well, I don't know anything about business. And, and they said, that's okay. We do, you know, something about science and that's something we don't know about. And so that was a really, I had a sort of an interesting entree into entrepreneurship because I didn't, didn't know anything about it. Um, and so that was actually sort of a, an interesting, it was a strange experience. I remember actually maybe like two weeks into the job, walking through the West Village in the New York with the founder and saying, what's a basis point? Because you guys have given me these basis points and I don't know what a basis point is right? Like the whole concept of equity was entirely foreign to me. I was just right. overjoyed that as a grad student, they were paying me $60,000, $60,000, right? Like as a grad student, I'm like, I have reached the promised land, you know, $60,000. I remember like running around the grad, 
uh, you know, building, hugging people. Like I was so excited <laughs> about this offer, right? And and I've made no attention whatsoever to to the equity portion of it. And I actually think that that helped me get into entrepreneurship. I think one of the things that really um, is hard for the current generation is people want to be entrepreneurs, and that's yeah. a weird. To me, that's a weird thing. Entrepreneurship is a method to solving a particular kind of problem, right? But saying that you want to be an entrepreneur when you're 20 years old, I don't know what that means. I mean, I know what I think it means in their mind. I think I know what it means, the values it represents to them and stuff. But I, I don't think I know what it means from an actual rubber meets the rule practicality. Does you, you know, are you an entrepreneur if you're not a founder? If you're the the tenth employee, are you an entrepreneur? Uh, you know, what does that actually mean? I get so many young people who are like, "Well, I want to be my own boss," and I'm like, "How would yeah. you know? You've never had a boss. Yeah. How could you know that you that you want to be your own boss when you've never never had a boss in your life?" Correct. And, and, and so you know, you you left academia and you you know built and sell, uh, sold to uh, to successful startups. So uh, so you know, what were the the startups about? Yeah. So the the first one I joined a, a startup called Thrive. It was co-founded by okay. a guy named Avi Karnani. Uh, and uh, man, like it's too early in the morning here in the U.S. I can't remember the name of the CTO. Ori Schnaps. There we go. Poor Ori. <laughs> uh, so Ori and Avi got together and built this company, and and I came on sort of as the head of product. Um, and we had a great experience and exited to lending tree. Um, and then we were lending tree for a while after, you know, sort of transitionally as one expects. And then Avi okay. and I went on to found a company called Churnless that did sort of behavioral science, applied behavioral science, uh, interventions, uh, in the early days. And so it's, uh, I've been tremendously lucky. Um, you know, so much of success is just about timing. Yeah. Right? Yep. I, I, you know, I love there's this, um, I was talking to a guy, I think from Kleiner Perkins at one point, and he told a really great story and I'm going to, I'm going to totally screw it up, but they, they had a like mobile only fund. Uh, okay. And all they did, they're like, their thesis was, I think it was like a hundred million dollars, a big fund. And it was like, we're only going to invest in like the best of the best of mobile apps. Um, and so it was like the right thesis, but they were just literally like two years too early. I'll make up the dates. I can't remember what they were, but they were like, the fund invested in like six, seven and like Uber and everything that really went huge in mobile was like eight, nine. Right. And so they were like just slightly too early. And so I always, you know, sort of think of my career as having been very much a product of timing. You know, I got into behavioral science just, you know, sort of as the rest of the world woke up and figured out that it might be a thing. Um, you know, and I, and I, and maybe still slightly too early, right? At 37, I'm a chief behavioral officer, right? Like, I think it'd be easier to PSC if I, like, was in my 40s and had more gray hair. But, like, um, you know, it's coming right along at that right moment, I think, was interesting. And so entrepreneurship for me has very much been a journey of timing uh, right. more than anything else. Yeah, I, I totally believe that, you know, luck is an important factor. Uh, you know, I, I believe if Google Maps had not uh, been there for over... Uh, you never know, you know, would, would it have worked or not, but, uh, but we will come to Uber later on. But, uh, you know, in the book, you talk about purpose of a product uh, is, to, is to change behavior. So, you know, should one focus on processes or outcomes, uh, you know, for somebody who, uh, who is listening to the podcast is a, is a product manager, you know, what should, what should he focus on? 
Yeah, I think I think uh, he or she should focus on on outcomes, right? I think that, that you know, one of the big problems, the book is called Start at the End for a Reason, right? I right. think one of the big problems with the modern product process is we very much start with an idea of what we want to build rather right. than an idea of what we want to be true because we built something, right? right. And if you, you just... I mean, I think at this point it's uncontroversial, although someone can can sort of argue with me about it. But like, you know, you have to know that what you want is a hole to end up building a shovel, right? And if you just start with a like, well, this would be an interesting shape to build. Like, I don't think you end up, I mean, you can waste a tremendous number of resources that way, sort of chasing things that don't actually do anything in the world. Um, and I think it is really important to know what does the world look like when you when you're done right what does it look right. like when when you you've done it right um, and if you can't define what it looks like when you've done it right then how could you ever possibly do it right right yeah so so start with the outcome and then you know uh, walk back and, and create a product right so uh, uh, so what should be the thesis to uh, you know to build products uh, uh, you know uh, yeah, it, it should be about changing behavior, but can can, can you walk through you know the process uh, of you know how somebody should should look about about creating a product which could uh, bring about a change like like Uber did, which was a better alternative to taxis. We always had taxis, but Uber had, was a better alternative to uh, to getting taxi uh, from A location to B location. So uh, you know somebody's trying to solve the problem. What should be their thesis? Yeah, so I think that, you know, we, we already covered the first part, right? So imagine the world as you want it to be, right? Uh, and then I think the, the mistake that people make is great. I know the world that I want it to be. Now I'm going to start building product. I think there's still an essential step, which is understanding the world as it is, right? You have to understand sort of like the alternate reality and the current reality. And then and only then can you start to build a product, which is really a bridge between those two things. And so you know, the very first, at least a process that, that I have grown to run, you know, we spend the first week writing a behavioral statement, which is really an articulation of the world as we want it to exist as uh, when we are successful. And then the next two weeks are about, well, why are people not already, why would anybody want to do that? And why are they not already doing it, right? So what is the current state of the world? Why, why are people motivated towards this thing? And why are they not already doing the behavior? And so if you have an accurate understanding of where you want to go, and both what the current world is and why it is that way, then and only then can you start to build a product where you're pulling the levers of, well, if I understand why the world is the way it is, I can change those whys to create a new what, right? Okay. Um, and so I think that, that, that that process of really understanding why is the world the way it is now is really essential to then building a product. And so then step three is really starting to build products and I say, you know, sort of the plural version, because you should never build a product first, right? Because that would imply that you know how to get from point A to point B. And almost certainly we don't, right? Almost certainly, you know, even if you understood the world as it exists and the world as you want it to exist, it would be virtually impossible to, on the first try, get exactly the right thing. And so you want to start with sort of pilots where you're sort of exploring and testing in the world what you know, experimenting on what actually moves the behavior. And because you've articulated the behavior that you want and you can measure it, you then can see which of those sort of 
really super light, super, super, super light things. And, you know, I always tell people, you know, don't, don't do anything that takes more than, you know, three or four weeks to get, to get early results, right? You want things that are deliberately very light so that you can get, you know, early signal and then start to double down on the ones that, you know, that, that you promise. Yeah, double down and double down and double down, right? And that's the thing I think people are familiar with this, this iteration, you know, towards product market fit, right? Version right. of the world where I think people screw up is they don't, they don't know where they want to go. They don't know why they are where they are. And so when they're iterating, they're sort of iterating blindly based on in-the-moment feedback, which, you know, is sort of contextless, if that makes sense. Got it. And so, you know, uh, uh, it's been it's been said that, you know, life of any startup can be divided into two parts before product market fit and after product market fit. But, but do you think a founder uh, uh, to product fit or founder to product to market fit is, is also important? You know, I do. I do. You're right. Okay. Um, I think, how do I say this well? You know, the scientist in me wants to believe that it's all egalitarian, right? That anybody could build anything and be equally good at it. But I just don't, I don't think that's true. And this is where the sort of science and art start to diverge a little bit and the sort of applied behavioral science versus like you know, sort of in the lab behavioral science, right? In the lab behavioral science, it doesn't matter who does it, right? And it shouldn't matter who does it, right? Like that's the whole point of science. When you start to, to sort of apply this in the world, you know, experience with, with, a, with an industry or, or, a, or a type of change, because you can't pilot everything, right? Wait, let me say it a different way. In, in sort of in the lab science, the theory is you could eventually pilot everything. Right? right. And so the reason you can be agnostic of experimenter is because you can try every combination over time in the world. Right. You run out of resources before you do it. And so the difference between applied psych, uh, psychology and sort of lab psychology, I think, is that applied psychology has the additional constraint that is and we can only try so many things before we run out of gas. And so I think that what having the right founder does and the right team does is, you know, pare down the things that are probably wrong so you don't run out of gas before you have a chance to find their thing that's right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. And, and, and do you believe, you know, founders should have uh, spent their 10,000 hours in that particular industry uh, to, to solve uh, the problem which they're trying to solve, like Travis, or, or, you know, try to solve Uber, uh, was trying to, uh, to build Uber, but he was not from the same industry. So, so does it really matter, or do you think you know uh, a founder who's trying to who's passionate about a problem but is not from that same industry can can also deliver uh, good good results? Yeah, so I think that there's there's uh, let me sort of answer that in in two parts, right? The first one is like how much knowledge is the right knowledge, um, okay. and I think some rounding yourself with the right knowledge is really really important. Um, what I you know, as pointed out by many people, if you're too deep in it, you know, you just end up replicating the biases of, of the previous thing, right? Like one of the reasons that diversity is going to drive so much change in our world is because people with diverse perspectives aren't shackled by the existing perspective. Like the world as, you know, the modern tech world was largely built by white guys, right? right. And that is a hindrance, right? Because 
we just replicate the same white guy viewpoint on the world instead of attacking it from new angles. And change comes from the introduction of new angles, right? And so I do think being an outsider to an industry can be, can be very beneficial. That said, I think there's a difference between uh, being an outsider to an industry or having enough perspective or getting enough perspective. Like I think a founder can be very expert at something, but then get enough people in the room who can, can challenge that thinking uh, to, to sort of get there. So, so I think it depends a lot on, you know, sort of how, but you know, what kind of people you can surround yourself inside of or outside of the industry. Right. So just because for example, Travis didn't have a lot of transportation experience doesn't mean he didn't surround himself with people who did right. And talk right. to people who did. And right. so I think that, that, you know, too often young people in particular reject experience, right? We see this ageism in hiring, that kind of stuff. I mean, I think that that's a, that's a big red flag to me, right? Because, you know, just because, the, just because people don't know everything doesn't mean they don't know nothing. You know, I, yeah. I, I remember going at the Philly Art Museum to, um, uh, to see a Salvador Dali exhibit. And it was really a wonderfully done exhibit. And they laid his, his work out chronologically, um, which I thought was a really interesting approach. And what was fascinating was, you know, we all typically think of Dali in the sort of melting clocks version of, of his work. But in reality, like his early work as a student was copy everyone else, right? right. And so you can see him very deliberately, one by one, copy the style of the masters. And I think in a sense, you earn the permission. I don't think it's about the 10,000 hours. I don't think it's about expertise, but I think you earn the permission to, to say that we should be doing something different by showing why doing the same thing doesn't work. Does that make sense? Right? Yeah, you, can't, you can't reject the null hypothesis if you have not at least explored it, right? And so in the absence of additional data that tells us that there's room for improvement, doing the same thing will produce the same outcome. And so if you want to disrupt, you need to understand like why that you, you need to, 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 to know enough about the current state of things to be able to understand what change looks like in a systematic way. Mere change, just I'm going to blow it up, unfocused change to me seems nothing but a waste of resources, right? Way too many people come with disruption in mind and they're like, I don't understand what the current thing is. And I don't understand why it is the way it is. All I know is I want to disrupt it. Right. Right. All I want, all I know is I want to blow it up and be the CEO of something that is disruptive. Right. And disruption is a side effect. Disruption isn't the point. You don't go into something being like, I'm going to fuck up the original. You go in sort of trying to improve. And if you happen to improve it, it may disrupt the individual, you know, the sort of, I always, maybe I'll give the following example. I always sort of talk about um, if you want to figure out whether you're a good product person and how to be a good product person, imagine if you were working on a problem oh. and you know, you really worked on it and thought hard about it and you woke up one morning and someone else had solved the problem. And if you're pissed, then you're probably not a very good product person. Okay. Right. But if you say, great, now I can solve some other problem that's a good product person, right? I am overjoyed when someone solves something that I've been working on because it means I don't have to solve that anymore. I can go solve something else, right? Like yeah. there's plenty of problems out there. I'm like ecstatic when someone solves a problem that, that you know, I think is a real problem in the world. And so, 
you know, look, everybody has a natural knee jerk. Like, well, that's a bummer. I, I wish I had been the one who solved it, depending on your sort of competitive aim. But like, you know, your, your ability to be a productive product person is how quickly you can move beyond that and say like, great, someone else solved it, move on. Right. right? Right. Yeah. So, you know, in the, uh, Matt, in the book, you've talked about Uber as a, as a product, which is, which has changed behavior, but you also critical, critical about, you know, how, how to run the business, price surging and all. So, so, so what is your viewpoint about, about Uber as a company? And do you think now, you know, after the IPOs, IPOs happened, do you think uh, Uber uh, is, is doing things, which is, uh, uh, which is, which is, uh, it has already disrupted the, the transportation industry, but, but, but I just wanted to know your, your, your thoughts about, uh, about the company and uh, where they're yeah, I mean, so huge underperforming IPO, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's reflective of the lack of diversity that uh, the company was founded on, right? I, you know, as you noted in the book, I sort of take Travis to task for, for his approaches to gender and other things. And, and I think that, you know, Uber to me has been very one note you know, they've made some successful growth into like Uber Eats and some other things, subscription services. Like, it's not like I don't think they've added features and I appreciate their ability to continue to sort of move forward. But when you look at the long, long-term growth of a company, right, the long, long-term growth of a company is dependent on their ability to continually, you know, bring a fresh set of, of, of behavioral goals to what they do. And, you know, I don't think... Uh, they've done a terribly good job of that uh, recently. It's not to say they can't get it back. You know, I know some people who work there now that, you know, I have, I have uh, um, some confidence in, but I, you know, I also think it's, it's unavoidable that, you know, until I think there's going to be a real reluctance in the marketplace to embrace, embrace Uber until Travis sort of is divested of his shares, right? Because at the moment, every time you take an Uber ride, you, you, you enrich someone who, you know, for all intents and purposes, seems to be not a great person, right? And so when there are such handy alternatives like Lyft uh, yeah. and others who seem to be doing much more egalitarian things, I think that little bit of sort of Travis is an asshole will continue to hold the company back. I think the the best thing for Uber as a company would be to uh, uh, sort of cash Travis out and, and, and get him off the books. <laughs> Got it. And, uh, you know, uh, I wanted to understand, you know, how, uh, you have large companies where uh, like Google, you know, they've tried to build Google Plus or, uh, you know, you, you have other products like Bing, but they did not get adapted. So how do, how do successful companies look at, look at building products when, uh, when they're, uh, they're very large, they have large teams, uh, you know, uh, or, or do you think it's, it's only a smaller teams uh, which can look at uh, disrupting uh, 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 industry or trying to try to solve something? Yeah, not at all. I mean, Bing's actually a really good example. I think big companies can be, disruptive and innovative, right? So like Google is on a path to be 100% of search. And these days, you know, Bing owns about 30% of search, right? Like they've effectively halted Google's sort of path to total dominance. And they did that with a large team. And there's a reason there's only two really, you know, real search engines, right? It's basically just Bing and Google, like DuckDuckGo, Yahoo went away. Like it's just Bing and Google at the end of the day. And all of the things that aren't Google are powered by Bing, right? So like Yahoo search. Thing, right? like, you know, all of those interfaces are powered by, 
by, by one of those two core engines. And that's because search is really expensive and really hard and really computationally intensive. And so you need a bunch of capital, right? And so, you know, I do think there's this false notion that like only a small team can, can do it when in fact, you know, some things do require pretty big bets to be able to like um, go and get the surface area that you need to, to sort of be disruptive. And so I hate this notion that big companies can't be, can't be disruptive. Now, one of the things that enables disruption in a big company is, is long-term bets, right? I think, you know, I am, um, I've been very public about the, the fact that I think quarter over the, the demand of Wall Street and analysts for quarter over quarter returns is just nonsense, right? I mean, I think um, if you look at Microsoft as a really great example, I work there, so, so you know, I have a lot of context, yeah. right. right? You're talking about a company that sat at 20, for 15 years, right? I mean, it sat, it sat at the same stock price forever, right? Gave right. off great dividends, whatever. But then very, very quickly, uh, you know, in the time that I was there, I think it went from 20 to like basically 100, right? right. Sort of 5x in a couple of years that I was there because those long-term bets started paying off, right? right. Uh, and, you know, when you've got enough of a cash reserve, like take those long-term bets. And so I think the notion that we compensate CEOs on quarter over quarter returns, that the market pays attention to quarter over quarter returns, that analysts are solely focused on quarter over quarter returns. You know, it really is about those big long-term capital intensive bets that are about sort of permanent disruption. Um, and so I think, you know, that's where the big guys uh, are poised to make um, some, some really big, you know, sort of difference in the world. And, you know, I think that can also start from small teams, right? You look at like Sally Krawcheck and, and Elevest, right? Um, you know, quickest robo-advisor to 100 million assets uh, in, in assets under management AUM uh, because they like looked at the field, they saw where there was a gap and then they sort of charged deliberately into that gap. And so I think there's room for both big teams and small teams to sort of find out where there's a gap and go after it. Um, and I think, you know, uh, the notion that anyone is um, can't do it is is really repugnant to me. I think that there's this notion sometimes that like I always sort of cringe when people make statements about who can't do something. Um, now we can make statements about who might be better equipped to do something or the kind of things that might make it easier to do something. But but I think if history has proven anything, it's proven that like uh, you know saying that you that that people that a certain kind of people can't do something is inviting. Uh, uh, you being an idiot, <laughs> right? Inviting, inviting history to prove you wrong. Got it. Yeah, but uh, but but don't you think you know uh, in in a large organization, you know, bureaucracy and you know that that uh, slowness does does come in, you know, uh, or, or or do you think that you know uh, somebody's trying to work on a problem, they should they should be given a separate uh, you know building, and you know they should be allowed to to work on that product there. You know, I, 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 I think you're always trading one thing for another, right? Right. Ten. And, you know, maybe some companies get 11 and some people, some companies get nine, but at the end of the day, like everybody gets the same amount of points, right? And, you know, the thing I would say is, you know, being in the classroom is a great example. If I had done being in the classroom at, at a startup, um, pretending that I had a search engine, which is itself hard, but, but you know, if I'd done being in the classroom at a startup, yeah, sure, it wouldn't have taken a year, 100%, right? It took, you know, 
six times as long. I probably could have done it in a month or two, right? It took six times as long to do it at, at Microsoft. But, you know, day one, seven million kids used it. So, Sorry. you know, right? Like, that, that's a pretty serious trade-off. Yes, things at companies are bigger uh, and therefore slower. And, and when they are slow, that's, it can be very frustrating to people who are involved. Lots of times I wanted to rage quit Microsoft uh, because it was so slow and so hard for me to do. But they also, you know, it's like a boxer. It's, when you land a punch, man, you right. land a punch. And, and there's no right or wrong way to do it. You know, you look at like, you know, Foreman versus Ali, right? Like, you know, Foreman's just got tremendous punching power right? Tremendous yeah. punching power. And you sort of know that if he manages to hit Ali, it's kind of over, right? And, and then you got, you know, nimble, agile Ali dancing all around the rim, you know, all around the ring trying to sort of, you know, work his punches in there. Doesn't have the stopping power that a foreman has, but, but does sort of, uh, uh, you know, have his own style and, and plays to his strengths. And I think, so that's what I'd say more than anything else is like on any given day, either of those boxers could have won. Right. It's really about who's playing to their strengths the best. Right. And so if you're a big company, right. you know, acknowledge you're going to be slow. Try not to be too slow. But man, yeah. put a lot of wood behind the arrow when you're right. Right. Because that's right. what, you know, a startup can't do that. Right. They have to they get something out of the market. Then they have to go raise money, which is a six months distraction okay. in order to double down on that bet. Right. But if you're Microsoft, like as soon as something seems like it's working, go put a, you know, $500 million on top of it. Yeah, totally, totally makes sense. Uh, so, uh, Matt, you, you've written the book, Start at the End. Uh, what made you write the book? And, uh, you know, what can people learn from, uh, from, from the book? I mean, I'm hoping the book can teach everyone that they have the ability to be a behavioral scientist. That that's, it, that, that that's a place that everyone can play and you don't have to be only a specific kind of person or have a PhD to sort of attack that. You know, if behavior is your outcome and science is your process, then you're a behavioral scientist, right? Like, by definition. Um, I wrote the book because, you know, I travel a lot to give talks. Um, I've always given, given free talks. I don't charge. And, and you know, as I have a small child, you know, I got an almost four-year-old. As, that, as the travel became more and more onerous um, and took me away from my family, I wanted something that could do a better job of speaking one-to-many. And right. I think a book is a really great, great way of sort of speaking one-to-many. Uh, and so that was sort of the genesis of the book for me was just getting off the road a little bit. Got it. And uh, so, so the book is, is launching on, uh, on 11th June and uh, you, you have a lot of interesting, you know, mini studies, uh, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, simple nudges, which, which can encourage women to, to ask for raises and promotions and, uh, and you know, uh, how the, the decline of cigarette smokers, uh, you know, uh, uh, led to, uh, yeah, to a killing of uh, one of Camel Secrets uh, icons, Joe Camel. Uh, so, uh, so do you, do you think it's it's only uh, uh, the book is positioned for for product managers or people who are creating or designing products or, or do you think you know even people who want to change their habits or they would want to change the uh, the, the behavior would would want to uh, you know look at uh, uh, reading this book? Yeah, it's an interesting point, right? I certainly read it or wrote it rather with sort of collective behavior change in mind. I wrote it intending to create things that change people's behaviors other than my own, to change groups' behavior. But the nice thing about science is that it can scale up or down endlessly, right? Because based on underlying principles, those underlying principles don't change. And so 
you know, there's a world in which you could effectively read the book as a self-help book and think about how you would change your own behavior, right? There's no reason you couldn't say, hey, what's the behavioral statement? You know, what, what inhibiting and promoting pressures shape my existing behavior? How am I going to go change those pressures, right? There's no reason you couldn't think of it that way. It isn't how it's marketed. It isn't how I thought about it. It isn't how I thought about it when I was writing it. But that's one of the, actually the beauties of science is that it, it, is that it works at any scale. And so, you know, I think there's more than one way to read the book. And I did... My hope is that it is accessible. I mean, you've read it. My hope is that it is accessible enough that sort of anyone could could access it. You know, it's deliberately not, you know, sort of too over academic, right? I don't expect people to have, you know, the PhD to be able to read the damn thing. It's got cursing in it. It's, you know, it's deliberately provocative. It's deliberately phrased in such a way that that it can appeal to populations that might not normally read this kind of book. Um, and I do that quite deliberately because I want the world to recognize that, that, you know, good things come in all sorts of packages, right? That dismissing somebody because they curse or because they have an accent or because they, you know, speak in a, a, a patois or a dialect or use slang or, you know, look a certain way or dress a certain way. Like, you know, if you, if you dismiss knowledge because of that, you are missing yeah. out on something. And so I want to write a book that, you know, wears a big old belt buckle and cowboy boots like me. <laughs> yeah, that's that's an interesting perspective. So uh, let's quickly do the top three. What's your favorite business book? You know, it's interesting. So I have a standing no nonfiction policy. So <laughs> I haven't read the business books that most people have read because I stopped reading nonfiction a long time ago. Um, oh. And the reason for that is um, there are so many amazing ways in the world to get nonfiction content these days, right? Like you can listen to podcasts, you can talk to authors, you can you know, read blog posts online. Like nonfiction content is more accessible now than it's ever been. And it's accessible in a huge variety of formats. Um, fiction, on the other hand, uh, really does thrive best in either some visual medium, like, you know, sort of a, a, a play or a movie or a book. And, um, you know, the other thing that's really interesting is nonfiction can always be summarized, right? You know, Guy Kawasaki can come on your show and summarize his book. And the very right. fact that he can summarize this book or that you've asked me to summarize my book suggests that there is some simpler version of my book that is non-reductive, right? And fiction simply isn't that way, right? If you tried to summarize Romeo and Juliet, you know, that would be a very impoverished uh, sort of yeah. view of, of Romeo and Juliet. You know, trying to summarize a painting or a book or, you know, a work of imagination inherently, inherently reduces it. And so I think that that's, for me, a, a key difference. So I try and read religiously fiction. And so, you know, probably my best fiction, fiction business book is, um, you know, there's a, there's a fictionalized series of books written by James Clavell um, that are kind of about a real company, Jardines in Hong Kong, um, okay. that I think are a really interesting, you know, so like Noble House by James Clavell, I'll give you as like a business, a, a fictionalized business book that I think has a lot to say about, about business. Or, you know, the, re the, re the real one is King Rat, um, which is James Clavell's, um, again, fictionalized version of POWs in Shang-Chi uh, 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 internment camp, uh, prisoner, prisoner of war camp. Uh, and yeah, I think it is a fascinating look at the, the, the great sort of question at the center of capitalism, which is that there are, end up being winners and losers. And, and what are the implications of those winners and losers? Got it. So it's King Rat and Noble House is what you said, right? 
Yeah, both by James Clavell. But King Rat, I mean, is, is I think, a fantastic business book that not enough people read. Oh, okay. Got it. Uh, I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, you know, if you could go back in time, we started uh, working on, on, on building products and you were interested in uh, behavioral change. What is the one thing you would have focused on? Uh, wow, that's a great question. Um, you know, I'll say I, I try to do these time travel exercises because the, the person that knows that I would travel in time is the person who who uh, has gone through it, right? And every experience has something to teach us. I have to say, you know, I was put in a very senior position very early on in, in my startup career, right? I sort of started as the head of product coming, uh-huh. coming to it as a scientist, which obviously had like tremendous advantages in a variety of ways. But I really wish I'd got a chance to work for people more, right? Um, every time I get a chance to work for uh, a new person, especially someone whose whose viewpoint I have not been exposed to. Um, I've learned a ton from working for women. I've learned a ton from working from under, people from underrepresented groups. Um, I, I wish I'd had more of those experiences. I and I and I hope in the rest of the career, my career, I get more chances to work for um, people with really different viewpoints from mine that can that can teach me to to be a different and better person. Interesting. And uh, do you have any favorite online tools? For example, uh, Gmail, Slack. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I obviously, it's interesting, you know, I, I like Gmail, especially the new predictive text feature, I think is, is brilliant. Yeah. Um, uh, I, because, you know, I really do think, um, it isn't that I think that, like, the future of bots talking to bots is quite the right thing, but I do think that, like, everyone has a, everyone has their own style, but that style is predictable. And, and so assisted tools, um, not tools that write email for you, but, but tools that, that suggest things, um, I think are really great. Human hybrid bots, I think are really, really great. And um, uh, so I think, you know, Gmail these days continues to, to, to introduce innovations that, that I think are great. And, you know, Excel. So yeah. I think that, that, you know, Excel is an amazing, amazingly powerful and simple uh, it, it manages to be both power and, powerful and simple. And I think that that's amazing, right? I think it's a little bit hard for a total lay person to approach, but one of the things I like about it is like, you know, you could spend a what you could do a one day Excel boot camp and do an amazing number of things with data, right? Really simple uh, uh, statistical analysis, really simple visualization, right? Like, and, and you compare that to, you know, people are, are so hot on coding right now. Right, so right. hot on coding. But even if you take a relatively simple language like Python, right. a one-day boot camp in Python or a one-day boot camp in Excel, I can do a hell of a lot more in Excel. Right, Excel is like SQL and Python and visualization libraries all wrapped up into one in a pretty easy-to-use interface. Like, and that's all a lot of people ever need to do. And so for me, at least, like, I would love, you know, I'm glad when people learn the basics of coding and how computers work, but I would love for more people to know how to use Excel. Correct. Yeah. And so, so Matt, uh, you know, uh, you're releasing a book, uh, start of the, start of the end, uh, you know, where, where can people uh, read the book and, uh, can it, uh, you know, and what are the best way people can reach out to you? Yeah. I mean, I think you get it at, at booksellers near you, right? Barnes and Noble, Amazon, wherever you like. Um, uh, I do, you know, the ebook uh, is out there, will be out there in the wild. And, and I got a tremendous opportunity to, to do the audio book myself. So it's all authentic, <laughs> authentic Matt Wallard cursing, uh, which was a lot of fun. And so, you know, I think um, if you're at all inclined to audiobooks, I think the audiobook version is probably the best version. If you like this podcast, if you like hearing things, it's a, such an approachable book 
that I think, you know, some books it's really hard to hear, right? Because they're so complex and they're so dense. I think this is such a hopefully approachable book that hearing it directly from me is really a great way. So I guess that, you know, that's the direction uh, I would sort of push people, but, um, but you should be able to get it on almost any platform, the, the miracle of modern publishing, it's being translated into a bunch of different languages. Uh, I was sort of lost track of all the different countries, you know, Korean and Chinese and Vietnamese and all sorts of crazy places. And, uh, you know, like, so hopefully there's even a, a version in, in whatever language uh, your listeners feel most comfortable in too. And, and I know that the publisher continues to push on that. Awesome. And, and, and did you have to do a lot of retakes when you were, you know, uh, recording the, your own book? Uh, no, I actually had amazing, uh, uh, and I was sort of proud of this. They had scheduled three days. I did it in a day and a half and they measure you on, um, uh, words per hour, basically how fast can you read? And, uh, by the, by the second day I was up to 65,000 or 6,500 words an hour. Um, which was like, the producer was like, I've never seen anybody like to a first time reading that fast. And then I had no retakes. So, you know, a week or two later, I sort of said, how's it going? You know, what do you need me to retake? And they were like, that's all great. You don't have to retake anything. And I was like, okay, well, that's, uh, and so I had a lot of fun uh, just doing the reading. Uh, It is profoundly a weird experience if if anyone's ever sort of done it. I mean, you're locked in a, in a darkened room, right? In a studio. uh, And, you know, somewhere outside is, as a producer and, and an audio engineer, and all of a sudden, you know, sometimes the voice of God just comes on and says, can we get that line again, right? And, but you're really just like sitting out in a room reading to yourself something that you wrote. It's very much like, if it's just like sort of a flashback to being a teenager, you're like, I'm reading my own poetry to myself in a dark room, right? <laughs> and then the voice of God says, no, read it again. And you're like, okay, I'll, I'll read it again. <laughs> Interesting. So, uh, so uh, Matt, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. And uh, thank you very much for coming on to the show. I really enjoyed speaking to you, Matt. Rowan, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate the thoughtful questions and, and just having a good conversation. And, and uh, I appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.